Hello, and welcome back to the My Entertainment World podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard, and today it's actually not a episode of the regular My Entertainment World podcast. Today we have live coverage, although we're not there anymore, but we've recorded live at the ATX Television Festival. Um, we have two podcast episodes coming to you from the ATX Festival this year, the first of which is uh, behind-the-scenes conversations with the people who make genius on National Geographic. Uh, the second season is all about Picasso, played by Antonio. Antonio Banderas. Um, you should definitely check it out. The season finale is on tonight, June 19th. So check that out on National Geographic. Um, so what you're about to hear is a series of interviews with um, the people who make the show. So we talked to the showrunner, the costume designer, the makeup designer. Um, the first people you're going to hear from are actually Arv Graywall and Debbie Germino, who are the production designer and editor for the show. Um, I love talking to behind the scenes people, craftsmen, all that kind of stuff. So this should be really fun. Tune in. Uh, I have some more information for you at the end of the show about where to follow us and rate us and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to spare it to spare you now. Uh, enjoy the interviews. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about each of your backgrounds and how you got involved with Genius? Sure. After Debbie. Um, so I've been a t TV and film editor for I guess ten years now. Um, and I met Ken Biller, who is our showrunner, executive producer. I met him many years ago, I want to say maybe 2008, 2009, on a show called Smallville. He directed an episode that I cut for him. And then after that, I did a show with him called Perception. Um, and we just worked really well together. So when this came along, I jumped on board with him. And did you do the first season as well? I did, yes. Awesome. Uh, I have done very little TV, uh, mostly have done feature films, and then about uh, two years ago, um, I did, uh, a year and a half, I did Waco, the Dowdle Brothers uh, produced and directed it, and uh, then I did Alias Grace for Netflix, and um, then uh, from Waco, in fact, uh, Kelly Manners was our line producer, we enjoyed working with each other quite a bit, and he recommended me to Ken. And um, yeah, after that, we sort of had our chat and uh, decided this would be a good thing to go on. Sorry, I should lean into this a little <laughs> more. Has the switch over to television, how does that affect production design? Um, it doesn't. I, do, I, I, I sort of do it with the same level of care and depth and uh, uh, kind of detail that I would uh, with a feature. The tough part about television is, uh, especially a show like this, so uh, Waco and Alias Grace were shot like film, basically. Uh, the, the, we weren't jumping back and forth to sets. Uh, and there were only six episodes each. This one was ten. And part of the success of this show is that uh, it has so many sets and so many characters, uh, which they did last year on Einstein, and I wasn't part of Einstein. And so it kind of uh, took me aback a little bit as to how many, we'd how many sets we produced every episode. It was like 30, we must have done close to 300 uh, plus, 350 uh, sets on this show. And so that was, that was the challenge, it was a big challenge. In fact. Well, and you guys sort of represent two very different ends time-wise of the production schedule. You come in pre-production and then editing's right at the end. Can you talk a little bit about how your role, it works in collaboration with the larger production and how you affect each other? Um, well, I guess 
I guess everyone thinks editing comes in at the end. Um, we, it's true, we're not part of pre-production, but as soon as production starts, we're on board um, because as soon as they start shooting dailies, we're cutting them immediately. Um, and so we kind of, I guess, I guess a lot of it is, um, you know, kind of working together with them and kind of communication is is vital, you know, especially with a lot of visual effects, things like that. Um, and it's it can be harder when they're they're in Europe and we cut in L.A. So there's a huge time difference, um, and we're not, you know, in the same room um, or I even in the same vicinity. So it can be a challenge. Um, so just having communication is um, kind of critical to kind of understand why are you shooting this, what are you shooting it for, and then um, unfortunately they don't they don't get to understand why we make the decisions we make, which is probably really <laughs> frustrating for them. You know, when we cut scenes or these. Uh, another challenging thing of this series is that these episodes come in really long. Everyone comes in 10 to 20 minutes long, and so we have to cut them down. And um, remarkably, we don't actually cut full scenes very often, but we do, um, we do have to cut big chunks out. And so that can be a bummer, especially for people on set <laughs> who are spending days shooting these things and wondering, why didn't it show up in the final picture? So. Uh, this is the first time I've met Debbie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm delighted. Uh, uh, to me, basically, the script's the thing. I mean, the final product, of course, is the thing. But at that point in pre-production, the script's the thing. And one of the good things about this, uh, and I've been lucky, uh, basically. Most of the projects I've worked on, the script hasn't changed very much during production uh, and pre-production. And... Uh, so our job is really to kind of follow that script and uh, to make it as uh, as visually delightful, as visually kind of attractive as possible, uh, lend emotion to the scenes. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, the actors and the camera do the rest of the work, and it all goes to Debbie, and then they cut it out of the movie. <laughs> and then she doesn't know the tears I've shed. <laughs> so Ken would come back, you know, you know that great scene in the train station where we actually brought a 1940s period train and engine in and decked it all out with Nazi paraphernalia where Roj does leaving Paris, basically. Uh, it's gone. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, great. That was only a half day shooting and about three days of work, you know, to kind of get the thing ready for basically what was about a minute, two minutes at most of screen time. So it's those sort of things, but you understand because ultimately it's the story you're trying to tell. And yeah, in editing, the story gets created, you know, beyond the script and beyond all the pieces. So my job is to give them as much, as much footage, as much kind of uh, uh, um, uh, stuff to work with as they demand, and that's and afterwards they do their thing. Uh, the one thing that they do do sometimes, which I'm also kind of really uh, happy to work with, is ask for things, you know, little inserts and little details to be done afterwards. And I love those because those are the kind of things that where the editor's like, I need this piece, I need this transition. And I know at that point, even though it's extra work and everybody grumbles about it because you're still trying to do the rest of the show, that those are the pieces that are now going to sew the whole fabric of this film or this TV project together. If it makes you feel be feel any better, <laughs> all the scenes that we end up cutting 
out of the show, we still have to spend the time and watch them and cut <laughs> them together. True. So True. we do still put a lot of work in them, too. Uh, I, <laughs> it's being I, seen I, by somebody. Same, but <laughs> <laughs> so as you've sort of talked about a little bit, um, editing and production designer are two things that we don't know the general public, the person watching the show, doesn't tend to know as much about them. They're a little bit underappreciated. If you could sort of inform fans of one major thing about your role that you think you, they really need to know, what would that be? You Shall go I go first? first? Sure. <laughs> um, well, that, well, I'll start with a general statement. What production design is responsible for is everything that's on uh, screen. So, uh, you know, beyond the acting, the costumes, <laughs> because there's so much on screen. So there's acting, there's costumes, there's uh, camera uh, lighting. But beyond that, whether it's sort of a, a detailed piece like a, a paintbrush that uh, Picasso's holding, or whether it's his entire uh, four-story uh, studio exterior that we've built on stage, uh, on location somewhere, uh, I'm responsible for that. Uh, so generally, those are the kind of things. But that sort of inform what I do as a production designer. But what I really try to do is I try to kind of impact the emotion within the scene. So my production design is sort of a little bit more than just finding a location and adding some stuff to it. It's basically trying to find the emotion in the scene and how I can kind of give it a level of, of, of um, detail or a level of depth that would uh, somehow underscore what's happening with the actors on the screen and with the lighting as well. Do you have an answer? <laughs> um, so for me, I, th I feel like I have the best job of everyone um, <laughs> because I get to showcase everyone's amazing work. I get to choose, you know, which which shots that the DP and the director have created, which which are the best angles. Um, I get to showcase the you know beautiful look of the of the sets and all the production design and the amazing locations, especially on this show. That um, that we shoot at, um, and then showing the greatest performances of the cast, and um, and then you know they always say editing is kind of the final rewrite of the script, and so you know I get to take this great script that we started with and polish it and get it to time and you know tell the most compelling story. Right. Um, and how would you say that the non-linear approach to the seat to the storytelling affects the editing process? Um, how does it affect the editing process? I guess, I guess it it's it starts with the script, um, which is you know always really well written, and you know like Arv was saying, they're pretty solid when they start. You know they don't make a lot of last-minute changes. Um, and they're really great. They're really what's really great about this show is that they write these great transitions from the from the different timelines, the different time periods. So a lot of times we use dialogue prelapse to get us from one to another. Um, but there are times when we need to stay in a storyline longer than what the script called for. Um, and so it's just sort of a feeling, you know. You just have to watch the story and. You know, you just kind of feel as a viewer, you know, am I in this story? Do I want to, you know, you'll watch a, watch a scene and if all of a sudden you're really in that scene and then you switch to another storyline, sometimes you kind of feel like, oh, wait, I'm not done, you know, and that's when you know, okay, maybe we need to stay in this storyline a little longer. Right. 
what's your favorite design detail that you maybe whether something it was that was glaringly obvious or something you think we might have missed? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, that's a tough one. Uh, we did so much on this show. Uh, one of the things we did was uh, recreate Guernica, and that was a tough uh, 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 location to kind of make work for us. So I looked at probably about 15, 16 different uh, towns in uh, outside of Barcelona. So we were kind of traveling around an hour out to find these places. Uh, and uh, we finally found one, a little town called La Granada, about 55 minutes out of Barcelona. And uh, what we did was recreate a market in there. And what I really enjoyed about doing that was uh, we had to tear out all the modern stuff. So it was beautiful because we were looking for a certain geography. And uh, we needed kind of an open vista which was provided by this roadway coming into this square and it wasn't a huge square where we could see the uh, German planes approaching that are going to bomb the place. We need another roadway where the grandfather and his young grandson could walk in with their donkey and then a cutting road across it uh, where a truck would blow by them so we, we'd think we were in another time period but the truck would suggest you know we're in the 40s now. And then we had to kind of find an open space that uh, we could build a building in that would be blown up by the uh, German planes. So I had to provide a whole series of little details, little scenarios, you know, to give life to this sort of really pastoral, bucolic scene, this innocence, and then the savagery that happens with the German bombing uh, needed to be kind of uh, 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 given a foothold as well. So creating these buildings and these false facades that can be blown up and that shatter and fall down. And then also giving CGI something to work with. So we were lucky, every square in Spain's anchored with beautiful church towers and so on. So this one was as well that CGI could then destroy. So it all really came together in that one particular one. So yeah, I love doing that one. Um, what would you guys say at the end of the day that Genius Picasso is about? <laughs> Debbie Park. <laughs> Genius Picasso specifically? Or genius or, in general. Okay. Um, so for me, genius, genius in general is about like really showcasing the best of, of humanity, the, the best and the brightest of humans, and showing all sides of them and making them relatable and showing them that these are people just like you and me, um, but they've, you know, they have a passion or a love for something or a talent that, and, you know, they've gone out and done something really special that's worth learning about. And so it's about, it's about learning and about human nature. Okay, I'm going to completely disagree with that. Drama! <laughs> 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 because I don't, I, to me, they're not people like you and me in a way. Uh, that's what makes them sort of so unique. You know, uh, it's funny with Einstein and Picasso, to me, they're kind of like quantum thinkers, right? So we're, you know, thinkers who sort of generally, like, why Picasso? Why not Monet or Matisse or uh, Brock even, or Dali after that? Uh, to me, Picasso and Einstein are sort of quantum thinkers. They take these leaps, they're these sort of balls of energy that are mercurial, that are unpredictable, that you can't really nail down. There's a theory about them, but they sort of took these leaps that exponentially furthered the way we think about things. And uh, I think that's 
worth learning about as well. Uh, their personal lives, I completely agree with Debbie on that point. Their special lives. But I think also the way they thought is worth learning about. And, uh, you know, the, the way Picasso kind of exploded painting with his Demoiselle de Avignon, nobody liked it. Not Gertrude Stein, who was his patron, uh, not his painter friends, not anybody. Uh, but he knew he was right somehow, but he also doubted himself quite a bit during that period. But that painting sort of exploded the art world and led to everything else that followed since. So that's genius. Thank you so much, guys. It was lovely to meet you. Thank you. Oh, great. Pleasure. Next up, we have genius showrunner Ken Biller. Uh, we started to talk about who could be the next genius. And after discussing many, many, many different figures and many, many different fields, we um, kind of uh, created a consensus around Picasso. And so um, with a lot of the same writing staff and a lot of the same uh, crew, um, I set about writing the first two hours of Picasso, which I also uh, directed. And that's... Um, and then I... Uh, uh, we know we did the rest of the show. And, and now we're here. <laughs> and now we're here. So as you mentioned, it was Nat Geo's first scripted show. That's right. What were some of the challenges that came with that? Well, I mean, it was a really, I mean, there were so many challenges to this project. You know, it was a very ambitious project, very cinematic, um, you know, and, and, it, and because it was National Geographic, it needed to be authentic. So I would say the first challenge was, uh, you know, doing this really enormous uh, deep dive into the research, first about Einstein and then about Picasso. You know, there's been so much written about um, both of these figures, they lived these really long, uh, eventful lives. So we had to figure out how do we take something that's real and true and really happened and without um, losing the authenticity of that, still make it dramatic and suspenseful. So the first challenge was uh, uh, and continues to be really the writing challenge. And then there were enormous production challenges uh, in order to do something, you know, on this big a scale. Um, and I'm really fascinated by this, how you move from season to season, selecting your new genius. Mm -hmm. um, what are the criteria you're looking at for what makes a genius, and has it, the sh working on the show, expanded your definition of that word? Well, we, we're constantly talking about what, what the word genius means. People uh, bandy it around and um, <laughs> loosely. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, there's a, um, Jeffrey Rush used to, used to use this Schopenhauer quote, which has, which is something like this. I'm going to, I'm going to botch it, but it's basically that, you know, a, a you know, um, a remarkable person can hit, uh, an elusive target, but a genius hits a target that nobody else was even aiming at something like that. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, for someone to be considered a genius, I think they have to kind of have, have looked at the looked at the world um, through a unique lens and seen it in a different way than the rest of us do and then show and then showed it to us in a way um, that we've never looked at it before um, they have to be innovators in their field um, really kind of on the cutting edge of, of, of their field and I think um, so so in terms of the criteria I think you know for season Einstein was a was no pun intended was a no-brainer I mean if you you know the word Einstein has become a synonym for genius and everyone around the world knows who knows the name Einstein they may not know about his life which we were happy to tell them about uh, but they certainly know who Einstein is so um, I think there were kind of three basic criteria the first is, um, d 
do we feel among our group that there's a consensus that this person is an undeniable genius? Because the show is not called Remarkable. It's called Genius. <laughs> there's lots of remarkable people out there, but there aren't that many geniuses. Um, the second, uh, and I think this was, a, this was, a, this was really important to, to National Geographic, especially in the second season, is um, you know, National Geographic is an international brand, and the, the, these, sh these shows air in 171 countries around the world. So is this a figure that is internationally recognizable, a name that people would recognize that they could, that they could market to an audience? The third, which was the most important for me as a storyteller, is did this did this person live a life that was long enough and rich enough that it could support ten hours of drama, which is an awful lot of story. So there are there are certainly are geniuses who you know didn't live long enough. Somebody was you know it's a parlor game. Everybody wants to know. Everybody has an idea for who the next genius should be. But somebody said to me Jimi Hendrix the other day, and I said, Yeah, great, Jimi Hendrix, but you know he died at. 24 years old or something, you know, how are we going to tell 10 hours about Jimi Hendrix? You know, there's not enough story. So, so, um, so for season two, you know, we really wanted to, A, find a figure who was not a scientist to, to, to expand the definition for the audience of what the kinds of stories we could tell. So we settled on a visual artist and, and Picasso seemed an obvious choice for that. And Picasso, you know, lived to almost 92 years old and had a very tumultuous dramatic life and so he seemed to be a you know a really great figure for that so well, and you're doing Mary Shelley next, We're doing right? Mary Shelley, which I'm super excited about. Um, lots of people know who Mary Shelley is, but for those that don't, she wrote Frankenstein, which is maybe the most enduring uh, novel in the modern English language. You know, it was written 200 years ago, and it still captivates the world's imagination. And she was a prodigy. She wrote it when she was 18 years old. Um, and that, that, that basically she, she, she created the science fiction horror genre, um, she uh, was a young woman who was able to uh, succeed in a world of men, and she was surrounded by other geniuses, Byron and Shelley. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is like the original feminist treatise. Uh, her father was Godwin, who was a, a brilliant educator and thinker. So, so um, and, and she was, a, a, as I said, a prodigy, kind of a genius from a very young age. And, um, you know, I don't think her story's been told in depth. And, and so uh, we're excited to tell that story. What, I know you mentioned Jimi Hendrix, but what were some other geniuses that you guys were Oh, at? you know, if you can think of one, we've probably <laughs> talked about them. I mean, we have lists and lists and lists, and we've done bits and pieces of research on various figures. But, you know, of course we talked about, you know, we really wanted to do a woman for season three. Um, uh, so, of course, we talked about Marie Curie, but we, we decided, well, A, Marie Curie was a, was a fairly significant figure in the Einstein series, but also that we would be then getting ourselves back into the world of science in the, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century, which we'd already explored so we wanted to do something different um you know we talked about um Beethoven and we talked about uh you know uh, musical geniuses political geniuses you know we talked about um doing Churchill but Churchill's been done you know in many different incarnations and so you know we're kind of trying to find that sweet spot so so lots and lots of figures and um ones that hopefully will end up you know uh exploring in future seasons I'd like to keep it going for I don't know 10 or 20 years it would be fun <laughs> When you talked about this idea of finding people who've had long, rich lives. That's right. Um, and within the confines of National Geographic, everything has to be accurate. Yes. How much artistic license do you have in terms of um, historical facts? You know, we, 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 tr we, we don't make things up. You know, we don't create events that we know did not happen. Right. Um, uh, we, we definitely, um, we edit 
In other words, we, we choose which events and aspects of a figure's life are the most dramatic mm-hmm. um, and the most suspenseful because we have to tell a compelling story. Um, uh, as you can tell from our kind of nonlinear style of telling stories, we, uh, we might take the liberty of juxtaposing events so that they're not happening in exactly the same order that they happened. Um, and of course, we're inventing dialogue all the time. You know, we, we might know that, that something happened, but we don't know how it happened. So we can imagine a conversation between two figures and, and, and what they might have said to each other, what they were likely to have said to each other. So, we're, so of course, we're inventing a lot of that. In some cases, though, we, we, we also use a lot of um, real quotations from figures. If you watch Picasso, a lot of the things he says in dialogue are things that he said or were attributed to him as having said them. We might have worked them into a different conversation. We might not know exactly when he said them. Um, so, uh, so, and, and then, you know, we do a certain amount of, of dramatic speculation. You know, this, this, given all that we know that is true, this is something that, even though it may not be documented, could have happened. Um, uh, but for the most part, for the most part, when you're watching these shows, you're not seeing things that you know did not happen. Right. Um, we didn't just make them up. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and we, you know, we pride ourselves on that, but it's a real challenge. Right. It's, yeah. You deal in the world of the possible. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about this casting process, especially when you're dealing with like legendary figures. Yeah. So I mean, for 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 Picasso, it was really. I mean, it was kind of a no-brainer. Once we decided that we were going to do Picasso, the first thing I said was, "We have to get Antonio Banderas." Now I said that kind of sort of jokingly and naively, just knowing him as a you know a, a, a great. Uh, captivating Spanish actor, what I didn't realize at the time that I said it was that uh, Antonio was in fact born in Malaga, and which is where Picasso is from, and that Antonio had a lifelong fascination with Picasso. Um, and so you can't really get much more authentic than that. Uh, and then, you know, we were fortunate enough um, that, that he had this lifelong interest. And I guess, he'd, I guess he'd been approached to play Picasso a couple of times before and never felt ready to do it. But Fortunately for us, he had watched Einstein just coincidentally and really loved it. So Ron Howard and I went to London to meet with Antonio to convince him that he should do this. And uh, it turned out he, he didn't need that much convincing. He really wanted to do it, uh, which was lucky for us. And then, uh, so then because of the way we tell these stories, we, we uh, you know, so Antonio plays uh, uh, Picasso from about 43 years old till his death at n- almost 92. We needed a younger actor to play Picasso from sort of his late teen years until his um, early 40s. So, uh, you know, we had to start with the premise of somebody who was at least a believable physical match, but then we, of course, needed somebody who could really kind of pull off this brash, mercurial character. And that was a completely different process, which is we cast a very wide net. We auditioned you know, probably hundreds of, of young actors. And we found Alex Rich on a tape that he submitted to our casting director. Um, and then we, uh, we, we just, there was something about him that really sparked us on this original tape. And then we brought him into audition live and, and, uh, and he, you know, turned out to be a great, great match. And I'm asking everybody the same last question, which is in a larger sense, what is genius about? What is Genius the Series about? Or, or Genius what it, Picasso or Genius the Series, however, whatever it means to you, the question. Oh, I think it's about curiosity. I think it's about, you know, um, you know asking really uh, probing, interesting questions and then, you know, trying to find creative ways to answer them and, and, you know, answers that nobody else really thought about. 
And finally, we got a chance to talk to Sonu Mishra and Davina Lamont, who do the costumes and makeup for the show. Do you want to go first, Davina? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I came about, I worked with, um, I've been in the industry for like 25 years. I come from New Zealand. And I started out in doing kind of fantasy, in the fantasy world with like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Avatar and you know King Kong. And so I come from that world. And then uh, I worked with uh, Ken Billo, the showrunner, on a show in New Zealand. He was doing Legends of the Seeker. And, uh, and then from there, we, you know, like years later, we managed to connect on a show uh, called Legends with Sean Bean in Europe. And uh, from that process, we went on to Genius One and then Genius Two. So it's been a long-standing relationship with this with this team. Yeah. All right. So I started out in costumes in uh, the, the early '90s on Broadway for the Roundabout, Roundabout Theatre Company. And I worked with them for several years, and then I moved to Rome, Italy in 1999. And the theater wasn't that big, so I started working in film, and my first big film was Gangs of New York. So I got to work with Sandy Powell and with... Uh, Just like low pressure first low pressure. job. Yeah. No worries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with uh, Sandy, I learned so much. It was one year's work at Cinecita in Rome, and we were doing this magnificent, amazing, amazing costume, and obviously said all the uh, film with Scorsese and uh, with all the different actors who were there. So I learned a lot just being around Sandy, working with her and being around these amazing people. And then after that, uh, I did some more work as assistant and then after that I started designing Italian film. And I ended up working with a lot of really amazing Italian directors. We went to Cannes with a few movies, we went to the Venice Film Festival. So we worked on films which were very powerful storytelling about social social stories which I love I think when there is some heart behind the story my heart works better you know so I go in and I do a better job and um, then I did my first TV show in 2010 it was called Zen for the BBC with Rufus Sewell and it was a beautiful again you know it was from a novel and we did about four four movies for uh, for the BBC and then I worked on Prison Break in 2000 and uh, was it 16? I think it was in Vancouver a couple of years ago. And right after that, I got to meet Ken Biller and I got on started designing for Genius One and now Genius Two, and it's been amazing. What have been some of the challenges of rebooting each season, doing an entirely new time period, have a different set of characters, different culture? Well, it wasn't so different. Like from season one to season two, you know, we're kind of in the same period, but we just go a little bit longer because obviously Picasso lived like 20 years more than what Einstein did. Um, but so we were in the same period, in the same but what know, kind of genre, really. But what changed was the lifestyle of yeah. these two men. Mm -hmm. So one was a scientific man who mm -hmm. lived in Zurich and Germany principally, you know, while Picasso, although he lived, came from Spain, but he lived in the heart of the Bohemia. He started out his work in the heart of the Bohemian life, one of the most romantic periods ever in art, for artists and for creating art. And he lived with some of the yet-to-be-known artists, so Modigliani and you know with the, his friend Max Jacob, who was um, an Apollinaire, and all the different artists that worked with him. And he was surrounded by just creation and Bohemia was against what the lifestyle was you know so they did not want to follow the Paris fashions they did not want to Paris follow the Paris rules and uh, La Bohème, La Bohème uh, the, the 
fantastic opera was out at that time, you know. So it just talks about the story where it's about the true art and you give up everything. You give up everything to create art. And that's when he started. But no, he didn't remain there. He ended up like trans, you know, entering the world of the richest men and women of the early 20s. And then he progresses into... But I think what happened was we managed to get in the whole world of art, which means colors, which means, you know, breaking the rules, like he says so very clearly in the film. We could break the rules of fashion from that period. So there were lots of different elements to which were which were very interesting on Picasso and of course the whole Einstein was very much about the structure about what was expected of a scientist to be wearing and you know and Einstein did end up breaking quite a few rules when he lived in America I think that's it I think that Einstein was more structured yes. you know in the whole society form and then Picasso were able to you know once you dive into kind of painting an artist it, it becomes more organic and I think that's you know although we hit every single period of the 1900s to the 1920s and 30s and 40s like we had to we could be very formal with the background yeah. we could be completely, completely relaxed with the main actors who were mm. playing the artist but we could go very formal like when we had the background who was there to be present for parade and the ballet and they we could go high society age of the innocence beautiful you know yeah. so we could we had the chance of playing around with different characters too with different backgrounds so we it was almost like you had all these different worlds all mixed in because they were blending in and they were mixing in together mm -hmm. while uh, the scientific world was very contained and very official and you had to be invited into that world you know so it was a bit different it was cool to see though when you do add the bohemian with you know, the elite yes. walking down Paris. Yes, it's cool. Right. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, and especially with Picasso, you're spanning so many decades and multiple countries. How much research went into it and how much artistic license do you have from what was originally, well, it was what was happening, what he specifically wore, even within the rules he was breaking? Yeah. Uh, for me, I like I've been saying this often. Is I've watched documentary after documentary after documentary for the first ten days. I would lo I just stayed at home in the afternoon. My daughter, I'm a young kid. I have a young daughter. She'd be at school, and I'd drop her off, come back home, watch documentaries. And then because we had the chance, because it was Picasso, there's a lot of footage, even from his early years. So we managed to I managed to get into the different points of view of this man you how how did this one perceive him how did that one perceive him because we are multi-dimensional and no one is more multi-dimensional than Picasso <laughs> everyone saw him differently and everyone saw his his power they saw his art they saw his his genius but they all had a different point of view on the man so for me it was a lot of documentary and then we wanted to hit certain important iconic moments and then there was a little more relaxed areas around that I well say. I think it shows with the fact that you know there were times we had to recreate the actual painting and so we managed to you know all of those those scenes that we had to do with Picasso and Francois and you know even going back into the 1900s we had to kind of there were elements that we had, had to hit along the way and uh, which was fun and you know and we would you know the amount of research that you do leading up to a show and for me it was more um, it was more obviously to do with aging of course we all we all know what the 1920s and 30s and 40s so I had no problem at kind of doing that even with our I wanted to hit that mainly with our, um, our crowd but it was more for me it was more aging and so I knew that I had to take you know Picasso from a baby up to 92 and so we I needed to be able to hit you know those kind of elements that each and every one of them had and it was the you know it was the severe kind of comb over that he had for 
a number of years <laughs> that he thought he looked amazing with. And, um, and then, you know, and then whoever, you know, whether he decided or whether his barber decided that it was time that he should cut off that top. So, you know, so I had four wigs available for Antonio throughout the whole process. And, um, yeah, so for me it was a lot of research into ageing. Um, and ageing on, you know, we had like 17 plus characters that I had to put prosthetics on, on a daily basis. And Antonio, he ended up like 78 days in my chair of prosthetics. Wow. Every day he had a nose on and, you know, we shaved off his eyebrows and we shaved off Alex Rich's eyebrows. and. Um, and so they were really gracious as to getting into character. And when you get given the chance to be a Picasso, you know, Antonio ran with it. And, and you know, and he would often say to me, you know, I, I come from Mulligan and so does Picasso. So he had a lot to prove. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I wasn't going to let him down, and neither were you. You know, we it's all about the team. We felt the know. we felt the pressure felt from the his pressure. side. We felt yeah. the pressure. I thought, and in a good way. In a good way, because there's creative stress. So ours was a creative yeah. stress where you go in and you're creating something. So it takes. It's not as negative stress. Whereas, oh my, it's not negative. It's positive because yeah. when you make something, you have to put the energy out, and uh, you just. And for me, it was the same thing. Creating. You know, the young Alex's costumes, which would blend into, you know, uh, Antonio's costumes, which would take him. So it was covering all the different stages of the life of this man, played by two different actors and some other actors when they were much younger. But we had to make sure that it was a smooth transition. But there were so many transitions already in such a big, in his lifetime, in Picasso's lifetime. So he went through multiple transitions within his lifestyle. Some artists look the same from, you know, birth to death, but not Picasso. Picasso was very, very, very <laughs> fluid in his changes. And, you know, it showed a lot about the social times. It showed a lot about what was happening in the society. It showed a lot about his own security and his own power. And, no, we can show that a lot through hair, makeup, and costumes. And not just... You reflect back, right? You, you, once, you, once you finish a job, you reflect back and go, oh, my God. How did we do that? How did I do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> we would often start at midnight and... You know, it's it's crazy now that you think back. Yeah, but really. I still, you know, now I look forward to season three. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what are some some things that you're looking forward to in working with uh, Mary Shelley? I believe is season three. Yes. Yeah. What are some things uh, you guys are working for? You know, with? one being a woman. One, and, you know, secondly, going into the 1700s, um, she was phenomenal in her very young age. It won't. I don't think there'll be much in the way of aging for me this time round. You know, and I feel like we may even go with just one character. One actress so there won't be two different actresses for me which will be great uh, in that sense and um, and I kind of take her up to the 50s so we'll be able to develop you know a, a different kind of character and a different kind of show and then for me you know I get to design a Frankenstein I can kind of go every single job that I've done you know with genius uh, you know who gets to not only do a uh, um, an Einstein but then I go who whoever gets to do a Picasso and now I get to do a Frankenstein yeah. and uh, because I do makeup here and prosthetic this is exciting for me and it's and it's Mary Shelley's version of Frankenstein but also it uh, will have a little bit of my version as well well and speaking of the monster I have to ask you worked so much in fantasy and sci-fi what's your favorite like crazy makeup creation that you've done like a, a creature or a character do you know really what my favorite 
My, I love recreating actual people. I, like I, I know that now that that is definitely what I prefer. But if you're going to ask me to go dive deep into the kind of the <laughs> underworld, I did this job in India actually, and it's called I. And I had this guy in a full prosthetic. He kind of looked like the Elephant Man, and um, and it was mainly just the face to start off with. And then you know we did the whole body and that, and we had a multiple um, you know scary kind of creatures on that. You know you could say Lord of the Rings and and all of that sort of stuff too which I love but uh, my favourite today is probably the show where it was just every single day in India in India yeah in full on heat and uh, yeah it's probably probably one of my favourite are there any like logistical challenges you're you're shooting on like um, on location in all these different places with the hair and the, ma- the makeup and the costumes for like maintaining them and getting them through the day? Yes, because for costumes, again, you know, the men's costumes didn't change that much for the almost 30 years until, you know, the Industrial Revolution came through. So, first of all, the logistics is taking hundreds and thousands of costumes to different countries, not to a different city. So, we started out in Paris, so clothes were brought in, a lot of the clothes were brought in from Rome for, you know, our stock and what we were using for the background. A lot of clothes were being made in Budapest and we were starting out in Paris then we were going to go quickly to Malaga to do some more bullfighting scenes and some more enormous scenes. So we had to get clothes sent to Malaga but then immediately we'd have to go to Spain and shoot other things and then we came back to Budapest and then we went back to Malta. So we were we were travelling Europe like it was nobody's business. Like, oh, we'll just go here. And it wasn't just on a plane, do you know no. what I mean? Like, no, oh, so it was hundreds, crazy. I mean, so we'd have multiple trucks leaving with hundreds of costumes yeah. and one hope that every costume that was needed was on that truck, you know, because <laughs> if you just forgot that one thing, you'd be in big trouble because, you know, a continuity hat is not on a truck. We'd be in big trouble, you know, and we were shooting different things in different cities different periods and different periods and maybe even continuity stuff in different countries so it's not like we're just shooting around the corner we can run and get that thing so the logistics especially on Picasso was about making sure we covered all the different eras to be shot in all the different countries to be shot within the time frame that was needed to be shot with different teams we had different teams so we had we had a core team from Budapest but we had a team in Paris we had a team in Spain we had a team you know and I had a work team happening in Rome so we had different teams so everybody had to come together and make sure that when we were on camera everything was perfectly in order and it was there, you know. Well, and then I had a massive truck which I call the dog box. So it's 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 outside of where we do actual makeup, and then on that truck was at least 300 wigs that we could pull at any stage and recreate. You know, from kings and queens into, you know, any kind of Picasso or any kind of actor that kind of came in wherever we were shooting. So I had multiple wigs set up and the time span where in the 1900s you had long hair like yourself you know and you had to have the natural hair and then once you get into like the 1930s and the 1920s you had the bob styles and then you keep going and it's all colored hair it was a phenomenal task to try and bring all that together as well as you know you've got your um, you know, you've got your cast that come in who might have dyed red hair, but they're painting in the 1900s. So it's, and it's not, a huge task. And not to interrupt, but to also remind us that we had, not besides the cast members that we had to do, dress and have, get hair and makeup ready, all the background. Because if we have got the women dressed in beautiful outfits, but they have a short, you know, their natural hair is short, mm. that won't work. So again, we had to do all of this 
for hundreds of people besides our main cast. So we had everything we did for our main actors was multiplied many, many times for the background, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're asking everybody the same final question, which is to you in a larger sense, what is genius about? To me is to stay in your in your in your energy and to create from a very deep in part of you and to create for the joy of creating. I think um, for me, a ge you know, the genius, even the genius series for me is opulent and it's um, it's a it's a place for everybody to create and openly create, and that's what I love about genius. Brilliant. That's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review on iTunes. And make sure to check out the website, myentertainmentworld.ca, at myentworld, my E-N-T world, on both Twitter and Instagram. Tune in again. Thanks, guys.